Welcome to the fourth episode of Food Love, the space between terroir and the Tao of food. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with my friend, Adrian Chitty. He's a marvelous artist and photographer who has just been engaged in a wonderful artist in residency program. And he'll talk to us about these vineyards uh, where he's been exploring making, the making of wine in a really interesting way. And first, I'm just going to say, Adrian, welcome. And um, we were just about to talk uh, about how we met, where we met, um, because it's quite lovely, right? So do you want to share a little? I'm trying to remember the name of the place, but we met in Italy at a friend's wedding. Were we in Positano? I, I think there was like this convergence of timing where I was... I was sort of stodging with this well-renowned Tuscan chef, Elena Matai, and she it had to Liguria. go somewhere with, Liguria. was it Liguria? Liguria, it could have been. Yeah. I just remember I met you at a beach for, was it Sophia's wedding? Somebody's wedding. And I think we're eating focaccia. Anakiata, uh, okay. Anakiata, or, is that right? So we were on a beach eating focaccia. And so what I know yeah. of you from the beginning is that you have always enjoyed fine food. And I believe we drank wine. I think we even, yeah, it was Liguria because we were talking about the stamped stamped pastas. Remember that? They In that area of Italy. I, well, the, the piece I re- you remember the focaccia on the beach, but the piece I remember is going to dinner with you in some old granny's house yes. and you took over the ordering oh that's right and, and it like you you looked like you knew what you were doing so we we certainly left you to your devices and we had this epic epic feast with thin crust pizza and beautiful handmade pasta that's the piece that i remember very distinctly from from that trip to, to Italy. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's been a while. From, from then on, you've always been associated with food. With you, so. mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I have always been so amazed because the reason you and I are friends now is because at that time, one of my close friends from Amherst College was dating you. And then she married you, right? <laughs> I think it happened in that order. I, right. I don't think it was the reverse order. And so... Um, no, it was the order. Yes. And then the 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 time most recently that we've actually been in person together was when you and Christine took me to the Queen Anne's Farmer's Market, which I love and adore, uh, with your children, who I, whom I also love and adore. So, you know, there's I guess there have always been these intersections around food for us, which has been really nice. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. I have always appreciated your photography since you first began sharing it. Um, some some of which have been focused on the Pacific Northwest in really marvelous ways and sort of that fe- that feeling of expansiveness that um, Ainsel Adams used to give us. So so anyway, I'm a big fan of your artwork and a big fan of your recent exhibit. And maybe we can just start with where you began because you are formerly from the IT world and then you kind of transitioned it's not that you morphed into an artist um, and photographer. All those things have always been there, right? So t- talk to us a little bit about that and how you decided to focus your energy in it. Sure. I mean, it's um, there's a long story version and a, and a slightly less long story version. I grew up 
in very much a left brain world. So I gravitated towards math and sciences and engineering all through school and college. After that, I ended up working in software engineering for a long time, for almost 20 years. And I had always considered myself a left brainer. Um, and I thought that's what I would always do. But then towards the end of my time working in software engineering, I was looking for a reason to quit. I kind of had enough. I was working in a relatively high pressure environment and wasn't really doing things that I thought were that fulfilling anymore and was looking for a reason to step away. We were living in New York and my wife was offered a job on the West Coast. And so we did the calculus and decided that this was a good alignment of planets. It would give her the opportunity to take on a role that she was very interested in. And it would give me the perfect opportunity to step away from my career as a software guy and focus on being a stay-at-home father with my two young children who were three, just coming up on three at the time. I have twins. So we decided to try this out and we did it. We moved from one coast to the other. I stepped away from 20 year career on in software engineering. My wife took up this new position and um, it was as we settled into that new pattern of being that my creative voice started to be a little louder and a little louder and a mm. little louder. And I was very interested in experimenting with creative pursuits. I, I did um, a jewelry making class, which was wonderful, making you know, using metalwork to, to make jewelry. Uh, I did about a year of ceramics, which was very gratifying. Um, talk about doing something very physical with your hands and having complete control over what you produce. And alongside this, I started picking up my camera much more intentionally. I'd, I'd always had a camera around um, as a hobby, but I, I started picking up the camera very intentionally. Um, and it was through exploring those various creative realms and having the camera with me more and more that I realized that there was this really nice intersection. I found that. I wanted to take photos of artisans and craftspeople to celebrate the, the magic that they do and, and the wonderful things that they can create using their hands. And as I was exploring these media, um, I realized that I wasn't very good at it. And I realized <laughs> that the people who were, the people were, who were in my purview, the people who were teaching me or I was working alongside, were really wonderfully, wonderfully skilled people. And I wanted to join these worlds of appreciating the, their craft with my growing skill at photography and, and to bring those worlds together by photographing what they do and celebrating and documenting their, their magic. Mm, that sounds so nice. So, so tell me, you know, of all the different things, right? You did ceramics, you did uh, jewelry making, you you did such beautiful, I, I would say, sort of cultural uh, portraiture when you moved to uh, to Bali with your family. And then what what made you think, hmm, I want to photograph winemaking? You know, that's a big leap. 
and also like cross country like it's a good question um so there's a couple of factors there so i think first and foremost i i'd enjoyed doing a number of photo shoots of artists and crafts people i I did countless of them. I did, uh, I photographed um, a painter. I photographed my ceramics teacher. I photographed a jewelry maker, two jewelry makers. I photographed a brewer. And each and every one of those experiences, I learned more and more. I learned about people's craft and and they really opened up when I was photographing them and asking them questions. Um, And I, my love of craft and art and creativity just got deeper and deeper and deeper. And I realized that I wanted to, to do more of this. I wanted to take more of these sorts of pictures. But what I dug into was that I wanted to spend more time with one field. So instead of doing 20 one-day photo shoots, I would much prefer to spend 20 days doing one mm. long-form photography project to go deeper and deeper. I wanted to go deeper in time to capture mm. nuances and moments that you wouldn't necessarily see with one day. And I wanted to go deeper into the craft to learn the layers and peel, keep peeling the onion to, to find out more and more. So I, I started brainstorming what would be the right me, the right um, creative avenue for me to photograph. I wanted something that was long, had a long cadence, um, and I was thinking months. Mm up to a year, maybe more, and something that I could work in. So I wanted to be a participant as well as an observer. Mm. Okay. (laughs) So it didn't take long to come to the idea of winemaking because winemaking has a yearly cycle, naturally, from harvest to harvest, but it has a multi-year cycle as well. If you think about some wines will age for a number of years in barrel or in bottle, and then vineyards have a multi-decade cycle. So there were plenty of long-term cycles within winemaking that fit my idea of spending more time learning and embedding. Um, but also it's, um, it's an area where you don't necessarily need a large amount of expertise to be able to participate. Mm. So as long as you are happy to provide a little bit of muscle and a little bit of... Um, willing energy you can help help out in a winery so it didn't take long to come to the idea that winemaking was a good fit to to meet those criteria of being able to work for study for a longer period um the the medium but also to be able to participate alongside and then as you mentioned we we were living in indonesia at the time um we knew that our time in indonesia was coming to an end and we were looking to relocate back to the US. And so we were looking for something that informed part of part of the calculus as well. Let me ask you something. On the on the part of the way you spoke about the the cycles within cycles for making of wine, I just wondered if um, you had a sense that you know there would be this iterative process for you um, as a maker of wine that there's this chance given the cycles and and given the nature of making wine that you would you would have your own personal experience of winemaking that would kind of give you that sort of uh, familiarity that you know come maybe comes with how one develops software or something like that that would make it 
you know, easier to approach on some level, or maybe it's not so, so involved. I, I don't think I realized that at the time, but in retrospect, uh, spending, it, it's coming up on 18 months. I've had uh, this engagement, this relationship with the winery, working two harvests with them, hands-on two harvest seasons with them, that there's, there's definitely an intimate relationship with with the wine and and i'm very excited to start drinking the wines that i've had Mm -hmm. some some involvement in and i'm already thinking about wanting to work another harvest season with them so it would be three in a row and just have that that long-term relationship with the with the product and, and the people and you know i i have this dream of decades from now of pulling down a bottle of the 2019 Pinot Noir that I helped make and thinking back on on the good old days of <laughs> 2019 when I was making that. So I didn't realize that at the time when I was making that decision, but having been in the belly of the beast for, for long enough, I, I now have this appreciation and relationship with the product that makes me want to experience it more. Yeah, and for th- for those who aren't familiar yet with the vineyards, because we haven't mentioned them, do you want to give us a little uh, background on the two vineyards, uh, the A to Z Wine Works and also Rex Hill? Because these are familiar um, names in, sure. in winemaking and um, located in Oregon. Uh, so, you know, we focus on the specific place uh, of the Pacific Northwest. So I'd love for you to just say a few words about the two vineyards. Yeah, sure. So um, we should use the word winery rather than vineyard, perhaps. Um, And and just to differentiate those, a a vineyard is producing grapes and a winery is turning grapes into wine. Quite often the two go together, um, but they don't have to. They can operate. There there are vineyards with no winery. There Mm -hmm. are wineries with no vineyards. Yes. So with that context, ACZ Wineworks is a winery. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the largest wine producers in Oregon State. And it sources grapes from all over Oregon. And that's its its branding is to bring the essence of Oregon to your table. So they deliberately seek out the finest grapes across the entire state and blend them into something that tastes of Oregon. Mm. Um, a to Z Wineworks purchased a, a boutique Pinot Noir and Chardonnay producer called Rex Hill. I forget which year it was, 2000 and something. We, we can look that one up. <laughs> and that that boutique winery sits within the A to Z winery operation. And it's a small corner of a, a large industrial complex, and it produces handmade um, artisanal wines in very small quantities and small batches and they have this wonderful latitude of deciding how much wine they're going to make each year and and there are some years where they might say that the wine isn't going to go to market this year because of various exogenous factors you know the grapes weren't the right quality Mm. or you know there were there were factors that influenced the product in a way that they're not happy with bringing that to market so it's Mm. uh it's a love affair project. It's um, it's a it's very much a luxury product, um, in the sense that the winery doesn't need to produce the Rex Hill wine 
to be economically stable. It's the mm -hmm. A to Z product that keeps the company ticking over. And then the Rex Hill product is the, the frosting on the cake that allows them to do the, the, the high quality single barrel sorts of production that, um, that perhaps allows them to do the single, the, the small batch ferments and um, small production wines. Hmm. So, I, you know, I think it would be nice um, to give listeners a sense of the the work and the photography together, because obviously we're doing a podcast, so they can't see the perspectives you took um, and the the vibrancy of the colors that pop in in the photography that you uh, produced. And you know, maybe maybe we walk through a, a few of the photographs that uh, maybe have the most meaning for you as an artist regarding the process. Sure. But yeah, before before we jump into that though, I think one thing that that's worth noting is that um you know I worked at the winery as um a harvest intern in 2019 and in 2020. So you know I've been involved in in the process that I was photographing, which which is a real enabler for, for me and for my photography. So I think that works on many levels. I, I know the people that I'm photographing because I've worked mm -hmm. alongside them. I've done the same jobs as them. I've stood there in the pouring rain doing the same messy manual labor tasks that they have. And so there's a level of trust and um, knowledge of one another that I mm -hmm. think gave me a very intimate view of my mm -hmm. subjects. But also there's the more mechanical aspects of knowing what I'm photographing mm. from a first person perspective. Right? Yes. So I know what moments are special or I know what moments require that little bit extra or that are that introduce something special into the process because I've learned those skills and mm. I, I've participated. So I think that there's some magic in being this embedded photographer in a, in a very true sense of the word embedded i've worked alongside my subjects and done mm -hmm. the same jobs as them um but to to come back to your well your before you do question, that i think i think you might need to explain harvester the the in harvesting internship because some people might be picturing you um on the front end of actual harvest versus the winemaking piece like where does the harvest end and the harvesting internship begin sure well harvest is the period of time at a winery when the grapes are mature uh, on the vine and those grapes are picked they're brought to the winery and they're transformed into wine so that process can take two to three months of the year normally in the fall here in the pacific northwest starts early September, finishes late October, early November. And those dates can move around depending on the year, but that's that's pretty normal. So uh, it, that's harvest. Mm. So harvest is the harvesting of the grapes plus all sorts of other pieces. The grapes are brought into the winery, they're sorted through, they're put into a fermenter, they're inoculated with yeast, they're allowed to ferment their macerated and all sorts of other technical terms then they are pressed to get all the good juice out then they're put into a barrel and they're aged and then eventually put into a bottle 
Now, it doesn't all happen in the same harvest season. The bottling will happen months later after they spent time in the barrel. Um, a harvest intern is someone who helps with any and all of those processes. So they're um, seasonal labor who are brought in to to help the winery during that very busy season where their standing staff don't have the bandwidth to do all of those jobs. Okay. It's, it's unusual for harvest interns to be picking the grapes. That's normally done by much more experienced picking crews. Mm. Um, but from the moment those grapes arrive at the winery, the harvest interns are all over them doing any and every job that's required to get those uh, grapes to turn into wine and put into your bottle. Okay, that's good to know. All right. So I'm wondering what's the best way to go through these some of these pictures. Um, I think because it's well, a, we a could, little weird. Yeah, <laughs> it's, for it's a radio it's, audience. Right, it is. Um, but it's it's not that weird to me because I think the process sort of dictates how we guide a listener through what one might expect to see in the exhibit and what we would be drawn to. I, I know that you know the invitation, for example, to the artist talk featured uh, a, sort of a row of bottles where. Is it a, a little bit of wax is being uh, put into the top yeah. of them? And it's, it's very inviting. So the first image I'd like to talk about is called extracting. And it's a picture that shows a pair of boots standing on a plank of wood. And the plank of wood is set on top of a fermenter full of Pinot Noir grapes. And we can see these boots and then a piece of metal, which... Uh, is, is a tool that's used in an important part of the fermentation process. So the process is called punching down, and the tool that's being used in the picture is, is a flat disc on the end of a metal pole, and the job is to push the hard cap of grapes that rises to the top of a fermentation, push those back down into the, the liquid. And the idea here is that you want all the grape skins and grape matter to be in contact with the juice um, at some point because the skins and the seeds and the stems are where you get the color and the tannin and all those interesting tastes come from. So the winemaker that we see standing on this plank of wood is punching down, pushing that cap back down into the liquid. And this will happen a couple of times a day for a week or more. Um, until the winemaker decides that enough extraction of all that goodness has happened into the juice. And this picture was important to me for a couple of reasons. It was really the start of where I saw a distinct artistic direction occur in my photography at the winery. I took this picture with, it was a very casual picture I took as I was passing uh, I was chatting to the winemaker who's standing on the plank and I took a few pictures. And when I got home and I started looking at these images, this one really sang to me. And mm. and it took me a little while to realize why. And it was when I showed this picture to the winemaker the next day and I found myself talking about it in terms that at the time were, were quite foreign to me to think about in, in photography it was then that I, I started realizing what was happening so th this picture is very stark very geometric 
very symmetric. And when I talked about it to the winemaker and showed them the picture, I remember talking in, in terms of the beauty of this image being similar to the beauty I used to see in software engineering and in mm. the software code that I would write, the elegance, the simplicity, the linearity. And I like to think of this picture as being one of the seeds that my creative direction grew from, because this was right at the beginning of my um, time at the winery. This one was taken in that first harvest season that I worked uh, before I was officially artist in residence, actually. Because mm -hmm. I, I transitioned into artist in residence after that first harvest season. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I look back on this photo and I see the the start of something, mm -hmm. um, and and I think we'll we'll probably uncover a little bit more of that as we talk about some of the subsequent pictures. And Adrian, if I if I may, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about this photograph, just to give listeners more of an idea of of you know what's happening in front of of me as a viewer of the photograph you can see the partial legs of the the, the maker right and jeans wearing right um with with work boots on that probably are leather they're black and there's there's something very an, like an old school feeling about the the work of it, the the labor of it, just from the attire itself, and and yet the suspension of that wooden plank over that vat of grapes almost feels very modern, almost like somebody's surfing and levitating all at the same time over a sea of grapes. <laughs> and in terms of the linearity, that tool that that um, maker is using is foreign to me, meaning like there's a sort of circular piece at the bottom and then a pole coming up. And that pole is echoed in this sort of red line off to the side that I'm not quite sure, I'm not sure what that is, but there's, you know, there's just an invitation to consider what's happening in front of you that I really appreciate and, and get excited by as somebody who, you know, has, all, has enjoyed wine, like to be able to understand the beginnings of it is is really interesting. Well, something that's, that's interesting about the photo is that it's capturing a process that hasn't materially changed in mm -hmm. thousands of years. So people have stomped grapes. You know, that's the that's the classic image of winemaking is somebody stomping grapes in a barrel. This right. is the equivalent, um, just on a slightly larger scale. Right, but it's more serious. It's more serious than Lucille Ball, right? <laughs> Lucille, I don't, you might not know that name from the UK, but the stomping scene that's probably like like sort of famous american cultural imagery from television um this this is different this is commercial and you know also very i i think respectful in the point of view and i don't know if that comes from you having done these things also well i i think you know this this picture does capture the the amount of manual effort that's that's required this is not an industrialized process and there's a lot of hard physical labor that goes into transforming grapes into wine mm -hmm. and, and you mentioned the boots and the jeans that's typical work attire in a winery you know it's a messy rugged job and you need to be <laughs> dressed appropriately for that 
I, I love the image because you get this this sea of grapes at the bottom. So it's really you know very obvious that there's a large amount of grapes mm-hmm. involved, and but there's this human who is physically interacting with with those grapes on a and you know, as I mentioned on a daily if not multiple times a day basis um, there's a real connection to the grape there mm-hmm. yeah i love it the the next the next image shows something a, a little further on in the winemaking process so th- this is an image of somebody who is using a, a plastic fork very large plastic fork or rake to remove grape matter from a a larger fermenter than we saw in the the first picture. Um, There's a process called digging out. What size is that? You think that's the size of a person? Oh, no, much bigger than that. Oh, bigger. Okay. No, it's bigger, bigger, bigger. It's, if I was to guess how tall that fermenter was, it's probably 10 feet tall, 10 or 12 feet tall. Okay, and that, wow. So it's, it's large. It's con- it contains probably three tons of grapes. Oh, goodness. Three or four <laughs> okay. tons of grapes. Yeah. All um, right. That's big. So the, the grapes that the grapes ferment in this large tank, and it's a mixture of grape matter and juice. But when the winemakers decided that things are the right, have reached the right point in their in their development, um, it's time to separate the juice from the grapes. So you connect up hoses and you open a valve and you drain off the juice. And that juice goes off to another vessel. Um, But you're left with a large amount of grape matter. And there's still some good stuff in that grape matter. There's still juice to get to. You just have to work a little bit harder to get that juice. So you need to gather together all of the grape matter and put it into a press in a winery. You use a press to squeeze things, squeeze grapes to get the juice out. So how do you get the grape matter from the fermenter into the press? Well, in small batch winemaking, the way you do it is by hand. You use a plastic fork or a shovel and you move two to three to four tons of grapes through a small opening in the side of the fermenter and you cut them off to the press bit by bit. and I I did this job a number of times at the winery, this digging out, and it, I found it a profoundly satisfying experience. Part of that was, you know, the idea of moving three tons of grapes with a plastic shovel. There's just something that feels insurmountable about that task when you start, but then when you finish, you're like, I did that. I moved all of that out of there and put it in the press. Pause for me for a moment because I really want to understand how long does that take? How many shifts of people does it take to move all of that? Or is did you do that? Like, have, can you say I did that in X amount of time? I, you know, it's unfathomable almost. I did that in. I did that in probably an, an hour, hour, hour and a wow. half. Wow, so that's the, amazing. I mean, it's it's hard work, and um, but it's satisfying hard work, um, and there are tricks to you know getting a large amount of that to move <laughs> quickly at the beginning and it's the tail end of it that takes time because you have to go hunting around to, to get the last few grapes out 
Because it looks like there's a portal to that tank that isn't that large. Is that the case there? Um, when you, It's an aerial view, essentially. That is the case. That you can climb through that if you oh. need to. So some of the larger tanks, the person who's doing the dig out will actually climb in and dig from the inside and, and shovel the great matter out through wow. the door. This size of fermenter we're looking at in the picture, you can do that from the outside of the tank and just reach in with a very long-handled tool. Okay. Um, but I, I loved it for the for the sense of satisfaction of having done that physical task of moving mm. those tons of grapes. And I, and I remember talking to one of the winemakers who said he loved it for a different reason. He loved it because it connected him with the grapes in a very physical, hands-on way. It's, it's like he touches every grape as it goes by. But he also said it connects him with winemakers past, winemakers who've done this, essentially, essentially this part of winemaking is unchanged for thousands of years. And it connects him with all of those winemakers who've done that for generations. Um, this is not an automated process. This is not an industrialized process. Mm. And And even on the the largest scale side of the winery for the A to Z brand, people climb inside very, very large fermenters and they will work for more hours than I did because there's a lot more great matter to move. But it's the same process. It's a shovel mm -hmm. and it's a small door that you shovel through. And mm -hmm. yeah, that will take hours and it might involve multiple people. Okay. That's fascinating. But th this image I, I like because it, it shows that, again, the physicality of, of the work it shows I me mean, you get a sense of from the perspective the picture's taken from you get a sense of how much great matter has to be moved because you can see the scale of the human and the scale of the tools um but i i love this picture because it reminds me of that job at the winery that i looked forward to um, mm -hmm. and hopefully i get to do again if i decide to do another internship yeah i think the other um the other thing I love is the feeling of peering in on it with a like a, a bird's eye view of both the transition and like the differences in material. You know, the the tank is metal, and I'm I'm not sure what the the collector plastic. It looks like plastic, food grade plastic, food grade yeah. plastic because you're going to extract more juice out of it. And I I think the you know, the juxtaposition of those two materials even ma makes it even more interesting and in the color of it and the color of the the safety vests, right? You have this, you have these very natural colors to the to the grapes and then the the bright yellow just lets you realize there there is some danger to the process itself, right? That it's not just a simple, easy process of some kind. Yeah, and I love the fact that you can see mm -hmm. inside and outside the mm -hmm. tank at the same time, right? So you can see there's there's the, the boundary that the tool is passing passing over, and you, you can see the work to be done on the one side, which is the contents of the fermenter, and you can see the work that has been done, which is in the collecting bin on on the other side. I was I clambered up on the catwalk um, and was dangling over the top of the tank with my <laughs> camera to to take this picture. Well, right. I, I like to get myself into all sorts of strange positions to <laughs> to find that unique perspective on, on well, the uh, on the process. Okay. Um, the next image I'd like to talk about is um, it's an image of 
one of the latest stages of winemaking, and that's after the wine has spent some time in the barrel, that wine is taken out of the barrel and, and is then getting ready to be put into a bottle. Um, so how do you get wine out of the top of a barrel? And there's a special tool. It's called a bulldog. And you stick the bulldog in the bunghole in the top of a barrel. And you then push pressurized gas, uh, carbon dioxide, into the... Is it carbon dioxide or is it nitrogen? Mm. I think it's carbon dioxide. You push high-pressure gas into the mm. barrel, which forces the wine up um, a pipe and, a, and along a hose. And in the in the path of that wine, there's a little window that you can look through to see what the wine looks like. Why would you want to know what the wine looks like? Well, as the wine's been sitting in this barrel for better part of a year, things will settle out of that wine. There'll be some sediment at the bottom of the barrel. And you don't want the sediment. You want the good wine that's sitting on the top. And you want to stop before you... You want to stop pulling the wine out of the barrel before you start drawing the sediment because that stuff you would have to filter out later. So it's better not to have it uh, in, as part of this process. And so the picture shows a worker at the winery undertaking this task. And, and he's staring intently into this little window, watching the wine go by. And his two arms are positioned on the valves, one valve for the gas that's pressurizing the barrel and pushing the wine, and the other hand is poised on the valve on the, the hose that's carrying the wine. Because as soon as he starts seeing the sediment being drawn up through that, that system, he's going to close both of those valves at the same time. So this image captures him at that moment where he's waiting the final seconds and inspecting that wine as it goes past and ready to, to close those two valves. It, it does feel when when looking at it that it's 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 such a dramatic moment um, that I think you're about to describe. So I'm, I'm going to excuse myself for for chiming in there. Well, I, I love I love the as you say I love the moment it captures. There's there's an intensity to the concentration and the, and the form that the worker's body is taking is, is very um, dynamic. There's a there's an arm coming straight towards the camera, but. I love I love this picture for a couple of distinct reasons. So one is that the artistic direction here is is like the the culmination of where I was going with my creativity through this twelve month residency. So we talked a little bit about the the seeds of that with the first picture with the, um, the punching down on the plank. And how I loved describing this picture in terms of its geometry and line linearity and symmetry. So th this picture that we're talking about right now of the racking process is the culmination of that idea. It, it's a starkly symmetric image with very stark linearity and repetition. And whilst the first image was taken subconsciously and, and it was something that that leapt out to me after I took the picture. This picture was very intentional. And I found that in the latter half of my residency, 
the majority of photos that I would take was taking were seeking out these geometric forms, this linearity, the symmetry, the stuff that spoke to my left brain mm. career that I'd thought I'd left behind. So mm. I spent 20 years being operating in this left brain space, stepped away, thought I would put my throw my arms around the life of creativity and you know everything would be fuzzy and warm and and fluid and analog. But it's not. And this image that we're talking about now is a culmination of this rediscovery process for me of, of spending time living and breathing this creative space and, and letting my personality show through in the photography. And my personality is this very perpendicular, geometric, symmetric, pattern-oriented view of the world. And it gives me a great pleasure to see this image, partly because of what it's showing and then this experience that I shared, but also because it reflects who I am and it speaks to the first half of my career, which um, is gone but not forgotten and is now embraced in a very different way in my photography. I also love this image because the wine that I can see going through that little window in the hose is wine that I helped make. Yeah. So this picture was taken 10 months after harvest in the, the harvest of 2019. I put that wine in that barrel. That barrel has mm. my handwriting on it from when I put that wine in that barrel in 2019. I probably sorted the grapes that made that wine. I probably dug out that fermenter to get the juice to make the wine that's in that barrel. So I have a very personal connection to the product that I'm photographing and it gave me great joy when I turned up that day. I knew this activity was happening at the winery and I wanted to photograph it. But it gave me an incredible joy when I looked at the side of the barrel and I'm like, hey, that's my handwriting. That's fabulous. I remember making that wine. I'm not a winemaker. I'm not a winemaker. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the guy making or the, the woman making these executive decisions about how this wine has been formed. But you know, my hands got dirty putting that stuff in that barrel. And, and I feel mm. wonderfully connected to that product because... Because I worked physically hard putting that in there and I got to photograph it going in in various processes in 2019 and I got to photograph it coming back out of the barrel in 2020. And I'm really looking forward to tasting that wine in a couple of years' time when it, <laughs> when it comes to market. That's exciting. I want to just point out something because our, our listeners can't see it. Um, but what struck me about this uh, photograph when I first saw it was there was this element not just of um, suspense and drama, but also if anyone has seen um, Back to the Future, that that flux capacitor, <laughs> you know, when you sort of have that sense that something really transformative is happening or about to happen, um, there's a glow to that window that has you focus your attention there in the midst of all the symmetry and the, the pop of color of uh, that person's bright orange shirt you know, that that glow of the window stands apart from it. It's I guess that's the light that shines on the window. Is that right? Yeah, there's a flashlight uh, attached to the window so that you can really very clearly see the liquid, the fluid that's passing by, and you can you can see the quality of that that yeah. liquid. But yeah, it's it's lit because of the the flashlight and it and it's very much the subject of this photograph is that small window 
but then you get this wonderful context around it of the worker and their arms. And then behind that, this stack of very symmetrically aligned barrels. So you've got layers of context that surround that very small window of, of liquid. Yeah. And Adrian, I'm going to bring back Italy into our conversation because one of the things that I think I found provocative about this exhibit is, is that I have experienced walking through wineries in Italy and, um, you never see the people making the the wine in in that harvesting process or any of that. You you just see these beautiful aged barrels of wine, and you know, I never once have I right. seen anybody looking through a window like that in any of the wineries I've toured. And so, you know, on some level, you're sort of opening up a whole new world to people who really love wine, right? To be able to understand the full process, to really understand the meaning of making. Yeah, so, so that's, that was something that, very, uh, that became very intentional as I went on this journey of my residency. So that was the creative journey uh, for me personally of arriving at this artistic style of composition that you see in, in in these photographs that we've talked about that acknowledges my previous life um, and embrace fully embraces my previous life through a creative outlet but i i also came to the realization that most of the imagery that you see of wines and winemaking as you've just mentioned is highly romanticized mm-hmm. it's it's the barrels it's the glass of Chardonnay in the sunset in front of the vineyard. It's the winemaker sniffing the wine and looking very erudite. That's not how wine's made. Right. Wine is a very physical, dirty, messy, hard activity. And there's an army of people in wineries who make the magic happen. And you don't see them. And you don't mm-hmm. see all of these these steps in the process. And I wanted my my exhibition to really shine the light both on the people who make the magic happen, the unsung people who make the magic happen, and also on all of these physical, repetitive processes that bring wine to the table. Um, so I, I wanted this portfolio of work to have that educational value as well mm. of shining the light on on the hidden aspects of winemaking. The, the side of winemaking that I personally find very, very interesting, like the nuts and bolts, that's the engineer in me speaking again, yeah. like the, <laughs> yeah. the left-brainer who wants to understand that that process from start to finish and all the, the steps that are required and what order they have to happen in and what tool you're supposed to use. Mm-hmm. But I, I wanted to share that joy of the making with the broader audience and hopefully bring some of that knowledge out for people to understand and, and value the wine in their glass a little more because they understand quite how much work is involved in bringing that from that grape from the vine all through its various processes and the time involved and the people involved and the number mm-hmm. of hands that touch that product and bringing it to your table. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think there's a sense of people losing sight of that because it's so readily available when you pour it from the bottle, right? That that part's so easy. And so you may never think past the bottle and its label. So I think you've really preserved something for people. 
there's also the the fascinating aspect of the economics of it. Like you buy a bottle of wine for twenty dollars, and now I know how much work is involved in putting that wine into that bottle. I I sometimes wonder how it can be sold mm, for twenty dollars. Yeah, there are economies right. of scale for sure, but um, now I think the 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 difference between the um, there's value and there's economics. Right. Right. So the the price of a product doesn't necessarily reflect its value mm-hmm. once you know how that product is made. Yeah. And and that's been my whole journey over the last five years of exploring artisans and craftspeople and really understanding the value of their product, but not thinking about it in dollar terms. I'm, I think about it in terms of expertise, of time, of a negotiation with the materials that they're working with, things that you don't get in an industrialized, mass-produced product. But when you watch a craftsperson make something, and a, a craftsperson, a great example is somebody operating in a kitchen, producing food, right? They're not following a recipe line by line. They're flexing and adapting depending on the materials that they're working with. And that's where true expertise and skill shines. You know, the, the recipe assumes the, the average set of ingredients, but you never get the average set of ingredients. You never get the average set of grapes. You never get the average clay that you're making a, a piece of pottery with. And I'm truly fascinated by the craft and the skill that people bring to bear when making food, when making pottery, when making wine, and how they adapt to the circumstances, how they adapt to the product that they're working with to produce something that is genuinely and truly unique and a piece of themselves. Mm. And that's not, you can't, you can't put a dollar price on that. But once you know more about how it's made, you can hold that thing close to you and you can value it. Mm. And I get that for, for wine now in a way that I never got. I never yeah. got that a year and a half ago. You know, I enjoy wine, sure. Right. But now right. when I open a bottle of wine, I think about all of the people. I think about all of the work, all of the muscle power that went into making that thing that I'm enjoying. And I value it yeah. so differently now to how I did before. And, mm. and I've, I've had that shared experience in, in every field that I've studied in my photography, every artisanal field that I've studied, I value the product so much more differently now. Mm. I, I completely relate to that uh, type of experience in my own life of seeking out, you know, the culinary arts education that I did. It's a very different thing when you say, I enjoy rotisserie chicken. And now that I've made it and I've crawled into the rotisserie oven made to feed 400 people at lunchtime and I've cleaned it with the degreaser and I've walked out still breathing, now I know what does it take to feed 400 people rotisserie chickens? You know, it's that sort of thing or, you know, standing up on the the oven to get to the hood vents in order to take them down after the day's work is done. There's still like, there's still more work beyond that moment of creation and execution to get that dinner out to your plate. There's like an endless amount of labor behind it. Um, And I do think right now in this time, you know, what you've shown us just about winemaking to me is almost like a prelude for people to understand, you know, 
what happens um, on the back end of things, right? So like in, in the computer world, there's what you see and what you interface with. And then there's the back end, right? And a lot of people never want to see the back end of things, but you know, in some ways, that's where the intricacy is, and and the the pieces that you can get lost in, and also appreciate if you have the mindset for it. You know, the the wonder, the wonder that goes with it. I guess. Yeah, I totally agree with that. There's um, yeah, I'm I don't. I don't want to sound like I'm railing against an industrialized automated world because those things have their place. But I think it's really important to nurture and to celebrate the artists and the craftspeople who bring, bring their skill and their time and their love to bear in products that can become very special once you understand all that went into making that and bringing it to your to your home or to your table. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. Another example of um, you, know, you, you talk you talk about rotisseries and um, feeding hundreds of people. I think you can get the same experience if you make your own pasta. Mm. So just go through that process of eggs and flour, and the time, and the and the effort to make your own pasta and you'll never look at pasta in the same way again you, know, you can right. buy a box of pasta <laughs> for a dollar at the store or you can spend a day making it mm-hmm. i tell you which one tastes better <laughs> well, I, I have appreciation for both but i you'll have a different experience right time and place right but yes yeah. you will have a different experience with the pasta you make yourself mm-hmm. And for special occasions, it's worth the worth the, yes. worth the effort. But Definitely. that's a microcosm of what we're talking about. Is um, mm-hmm. if you want to reserve an afternoon and make your own pasta for dinner, you'll you'll get that sense of um, value and of and of ownership and of achievement that um, I see in this whole spectrum of arts and crafts. Right, and and I think for people who've never made their own pasta by hand. The first time you make it by hand and you eat it, your mind gets blown. You you wonder why it is you never did this before. Um, and you you sort of wonder, how is it that that whole world escaped you before it happened? So am I right about that? Do you, did you feel that way? Yeah, you're right. And then you say, I'm going to make pasta myself right, for right. every meal. And then you realize how much yes. work is involved and that you can buy it for a dollar at the store. And then you save it for special occasions. Right, exactly, exactly. It's a rite of passage that I think is important for anyone in the kitchen. Make your own pasta. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree. So you have one more photo to talk about. It's the one that I sort of led with accidentally, but um, I would love for you to walk people through that photograph because I, I do find it like to be one of the most inviting. Sure. So this is a picture of one of the very last stages of wine production and and that's after the wine has been put into the bottle and corked um this picture shows somebody applying a small wax disc to the very top of that cork just as a finishing touch now not every bottle of wine is going to get this treatment this is for a particular line of of wine um, that the winery produces it's um this is the rexhill rosé and so this is a run of some thousands or tens of thousands of bottles. It's, it's not a huge um, production. But I 
came to the winery one day and I found this group of people applying these little wax discs to the top of every bottle. And I watched them for a while and I thought, this is fascinating. This is an attention to a fine point of detail that I'm guessing that most people will miss. So these people are are melting some wax in a saucepan over a burner. They're picking up the wax on a spoon and then they're drizzling the wax, a tiny little wax disc onto the top of each and every cork of those tens of thousands of bottles. And they're doing it by hand. And they're looking at each disc after they've done it and they're deciding, is this good enough? And if it isn't good enough, if, if it's misshapen or there's little bubbles in it, then they put that bottle aside and they remove the wax disc and they start again. And I watched them do this for a number of days and I thought, this is incredible. This, this, um, this is wine I have in my fridge. And now when I pull that bottle of wine out, sometimes I stop and I look at that wax disc and I put the bottle of wine back in the fridge and I pick something <laughs> else because it, it breaks my heart a little bit to put the corkscrew <laughs> through that wax disc and just toss that piece of wax into the garbage because somebody spent so much time and care and attention to detail to put that small finishing touch on that bottle. And I'd assumed that this was an automated process. There was a machine that did it, but no, mm. there's somebody with a spoon. So it's quite incredible as a, I, I think the picture is a wonderful document of attention to detail mm-hmm. and continued attention to detail through an incredibly repetitive task that brings just that very small finishing touch to a bottle of wine that will be perhaps subliminally appreciated by people or not even noticed by most. So I I wanted to capture, this is in the exhibition because it captures just one of those aspects of winemaking that people don't necessarily think about or don't necessarily know exists. But once you know that story behind it, it's going to change how you think about those bottles that you see. Right. So when I saw that, I thought, no way. This cannot be true. This cannot be the way that this is done. And I kept thinking, I better ask Adrian, is it just that winery? Or is that always like the case everywhere? Or or have they figured out some automated ways? Because I appreciate that someone does it by hand. um, And I have every time I've ever taken the wax off of the the wine in that spot I've I thought this is a thing of beauty like the smoothness of it like I have an appreciation for that aesthetic of stillness at the top but but I wondered you know is that the case with all of them or or just this winery I, I suspect it's um, a question of I suspect it's a question of scale mm. so um, at some point it's worth investing in a machine that's going to make every wax disc look absolutely identical and perfect mm. every mm. time and you lose some of that analog nature mm-hmm. of it being human, mm-hmm. um, applied by a human. But I think for for a relatively small run of bottles, it's probably cost effective to, to do it by hand rather than to invest in the machine or, or outsource that. And did you do this part of the process? I did not enjoy okay. um, this task. I, 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 I'll answer <laughs> that differently. I did not... <laughs> I did not oh, okay. get the chance to enjoy you didn't get the chance. this task. Okay. This, this, this was not um this is this is not part of the harvest season. Okay. This happens between harvests. So far the bottling. Away. So it goes harvest mm-hmm. and then 
the, the wines in, you know, in various vessels for aging and then bottling mm-hmm. occurs between harvests. So this, okay. this happened somewhere in between the two harvest seasons that, that I worked. Okay. Okay. So each, each time in each year, it was a harvest season um, set of responsibilities. And then you photographed more than those responsibilities because you were an insider at that point. That's right. Okay. Okay. So with each guest that we have on Food Love, I really like to find out, you know, whether, whether you've been thinking about the way in which we sort of teach, because there's this educational component of what you've done with your photographs around the process of making. And we've had this conversation about pasta making and you spent some of your time really focused on parenting your twins through, you know, these really important developmental years uh, while simultaneously creating a creative life for yourself. And when I think about how the world might change, for example, if, we were to redesign or re-envision home economics in, in the public schools, for example, or any school for that matter. And, and if we were to use the ways of teaching about culture and making through teaching people how to make food and learning you know, empathy through the experience of eating and sharing food or, or giving the gift of food to somebody, because I know you've, you and I have talked about that in the past, what would you imagine contributing into that uh, curriculum? What a great question. I'll, I'll answer this from a very personal perspective. I, I grew up in a house where eating together as a family was expected. It was an honored. Um, I think the majority of my meals as a child were around a family table with the, the parents and the two children eating family style. And I didn't realize it at the time, but as a parent now, I feel that that is incredibly important to the family unit. But add into that the fact that my mother cooked pretty much every meal that I ate. So you've got this almost idyllic setup, right, of provider cooking from scratch, bringing food to the communal table for the family to share. And I have patterned my family life along very similar lines. I'm, I'm the majority cook at home. I enjoy cooking. This, this is you know, something I look forward to every day as a way to decompress from whatever I've been doing. I go into my special space in the kitchen and it's an, a creative output for me. But it's more than that. It's it's about the gift of providing sustenance for people with something that you've made with ingredients and with love and with care and attention to detail. And you bring it to them and they share that with you. Um, so I have patterned my family life very much along the lines of what my mother wonderfully set up 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And as my children have got older... I try to bring them into the the same appreciation. So I, I have them helping in the kitchen. I have them cooking some things almost autonomously now. Ooh, wonderful. Uh, without too much input from dad. Yeah, how old are they now? They're, they're a couple years older than mine. Eight. They're eight. Okay, yeah, so two years old. 
Eight and eight. I'm, I'm looking down the road to see when will he be prepared to do the same. <laughs> so there's more to this. Um, I'm deeply concerned about the environmental crisis mm. that we're facing and that my children will face in more real ways than I will face and that my parents will face. Uh, and I think that food is one dimension of that that everybody can make a difference with. So cooking from scratch, sourcing your ingredients responsibly, um, knowing what's going into your body. All of these dimensions are important from a health perspective, from a climate perspective. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to teach my children the importance of those dimensions to, the, to this bigger problem space uh, as well. So you know, one thing we pride ourselves on or almost compete on is not throwing any food away. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's a sad day when we have to toss something because it's expired and we mourn that object that we're throwing mm -hmm. out and we question ourselves, of how did this happen? How did this crisis happen? <laughs> and then you, you look at statistics that, that say 50% of American food that's produced is thrown away yes. and it's heartbreaking. It is. It it's is heartbreaking, heartbreaking for so many reasons. So I'm answering your question in a very elliptical way, but I think what I would like to educate my children on, and, and so I'm answering your question about curriculum in a very narrow sense of what, what would I like to educate my children on? It's the importance of family meals. Mm -hmm. It's the important, the, the, the thrill of cooking and watching somebody eat what you have prepared. Mm. It's about sourcing your um, food responsibly and with a view to health mm -hmm. and how the whole system fits together um, and has a broader impact beyond your table and into the into the world and I'm getting some success so my kids like to, <laughs> like to operate in the kitchen That's um, fantastic. Uh, various degrees of, of output there's cookies you know they're easy right there's, but there's other other recipes that we're we're getting a lot of success with. Um, That's fabulous. Do you do you want to do you want to pivot into that? Well, I, I think you just did a really nice job of articulating some of the things that are behind the reason for having the food podcast at all. Like food love is is really about that, right? Like demonstrating how one can be looking at food, looking at the making of things that we imbibe, looking at the things that we ingest and understanding the connection to the whole. That part is, you know, moves us from the terroir of things into the Tao of food, that we are connected, um, that climate change affects us all. And, and that, that there's an important focus on, you know, how, how children are raised to understand all of this. Even for myself, when I look at my son, right, part of what we've done is talk about the Finn River flour that goes into the pancakes. So that's a local, locally produced organic uh, flour product. And I can't tell you the level of joy that, you know, two chefs have at seeing their six-year-old son make breakfast for us <laughs> of his own, you know, desire saying, I'm going to cook pancakes for you. And, and that ability to share that love and that appreciation for, for quality food. Um, and then to sit down at the table, I, I think I have, for a long time, I grew up uh, very much the same way you did, where it didn't matter what time we had to eat, we had to eat together. 
So my mother, who was um, an OBGYN at the right. time, she would come home late on different days, maybe seven or eight, and we would just wait for her. And then we would all sit down. And it's the conversations and the connection that happen as you eat together and the, the you know, respect for the grace of the food on the table that, that makes you understand the time it takes to prepare and, you know, the the ability to kind of find that warmth and feeling of family and home. And I do think sometimes in our current culture in America that we don't always take the time for that and that there has been a disruption in the very social fabric of how we live that in part could be restored. And maybe it can't be restored entirely at home because homes are so different these days with working parents and all of that. But maybe there's a place for something, something smaller, somewhat similar in in school systems where there might be an opportunity to make food and share it and get the same appreciation and and maybe some of those, you know, those values for connection uh, that that came out of the kinds of meals we had with our families. Well, if you've if you've ever grown vegetables. Oh, wait, Daniel. Actually, we had a failed garden back in Wisconsin because there was too much shade. So right now, though, we have just been wow. given um, the roots to um, to grow some blackberries. And then I am trying to germinate some Meyer lemon trees. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Do they grow in the, in the Pacific? I North think West? they do, depending. I think you have to have a greenhouse. But, um, but yeah, anyway, mm-hmm. you know, there's always hope. <laughs> so my, 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 my question is, is related to if you haven't grown vegetables with your children, you should mm. grow vegetables with your children because seeing them experience from mm-hmm. seed through nurturing to harvesting and then cooking and eating is a, a wonderfully connected experience. So the, the thrill that my children got eating the carrots that they grew from seed yes. a couple of years ago was profound yeah and it gives them that i want it to give them that that foundation of you know knowing where this stuff comes from Mm -hmm. but also the pride in producing that for others to eat so i think in you know if you're looking for ideas for how there could be a small place for things in the curriculum schools could have gardens vegetable gardens Mm -hmm. and then the kids could eat the products that they have grown and and just get a, a more connected view to where food comes from and the the value of food yeah so coming back to my value proposition when you when you know more about where how something is made or where it comes from you value it more mm-hmm. if people valued food more they would throw less food away definitely definitely back in georgia when i lived there i um worked with two other women to create this grassroots nonprofit where we we basically built a garden for an urban school in Atlanta um, because the librarian who was one of the women really wanted it. She could just see how um, children could learn so much and and develop that sense of value from having it. And we had we had met each other because we had all attended Alice Waters talk, I think it might have been at Emory or something. And I had stood up at the end and asked, you know, I understand how you've had these these gardens, but what do you do for places where there isn't this equitable access? Meaning like these gardens that you've grown have been in 
pretty well well endowed um, places where people have the funds to support them and you know the, the the time periods that are difficult are the care given to the garden when school is not in session in that summertime and in areas where um, you know people don't have as many resources trying to get that time dedicated in that off season is very difficult but that's a high growing season and so the three of us actually worked on a garden and created a relationship with the master gardeners and tried to educate families about what it would mean for them. And, you know, there was an unfortunate incident where one of the teachers had passed away tragically and the garden was named in that person's honor. And then the caretaking took on a different level of meaning uh, around what it meant for the school. Um, And for me, that was such an interesting time because the children had experienced zucchini um, through the cafeteria school system in a way that made them dislike zucchini in really oh, wow. tragic ways. <laughs> and zucchini has to be happens oh. to be one of my favorite vegetables. Yeah. And so one of the first days in the garden, I kind of provided some of the cooking. We just made some, you know, zucchini, whole wheat, chocolate muffins uh, for the for the students. And we said, you know, this is also a form of zucchini. And, and yes, it did have some sugar in it, which, you know, now nowadays I would do it a little differently and graduate them through stages of zucchini. But back then it was just an interesting proposition to see how, you know, they could learn everything through gardening. They could read the sides of the um, seed packets. They could, you know, learn about photosynthesis. They, there was so much to learn and do with a garden that it really felt like it had a lot of promise and kind of solved some of the pieces around equity and places that just don't have as many funds when people take on that ownership and find the funding and give it to the school and say, here, build your garden. And now, now here you have it and, and learn. I think that's a really nice thing to be able to do. So Adrian, gardening is a big piece of the kind of curriculum you think is sort of necessary for children at this point. And I think you also said you wanted to share a recipe that has been working with your children or they're finding some joy in making things. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, children have differing abilities in the kitchen, but um, I think if you give them the right encouragement and support, they can, they can do things that are beyond where you might expect them to be. So one recipe that um, my daughter enjoys making is a quiche. And, you know, a quiche, if you make it all from scratch, has a lot of steps involved, but she's quite adept at making the quiche with very minimal support. So I can share that recipe quickly with you. Um, So we start by making the crust. um, And pastry has this myth of being difficult to make but uh if an eight-year-old can make pastry i think most of us can probably make pastry <laughs> so you know, the, the, the secret for pastry is you want um half as much fat as you have flour so we measure 120 grams of flour and 60 grams of butter and that we've found is enough for a, a nine inch pie tin so we mm. We weigh those out um, and we'll play with the ratios of white flour and whole wheat flour, just depending on how we feel. Maybe a third or a quarter of that is whole wheat and the rest is white flour. So there's some opportunities to practice some math skills in the kitchen at the same time. 
Um, so you ask the child to work out mm-hmm. if you've used this many grams of whole wheat flour, how much more white flour do you need to add? That's wonderful. And you're using metric. Yeah. Well, I am bilingual in in many things, having lived in the UK and we're, the USA. We're happy about metric system in our household. <laughs> um, so you put the flour and the, the butter in the food processor and then get some ice water. Get the food processor going and blend until the flour and butter looks a bit like sort of an oatmeal-y consistency. And then we're going to drizzle in two and a half tablespoons of ice water. And we're going to pulse the food processor until you start seeing a ball form. As soon as that ball has formed, stop the food processor. We don't want to overdo it. Then grab that ball, wrap it in some plastic wrap, and put it in the refrigerator and let it rest. And we'll let that rest for maybe half an hour or so, or more, depending on how the day's going. And then I'm going to roll the pastry on a clean floured surface, roll that pastry out and try and roll it out in equal direction so it forms a rough circle. Um, And when it's just big enough to cover the pie tin, carefully lift it and place it in the pie tin and gently snug it into the corners and have it drape over the the edges of the pie tin. Put that back in the refrigerator for another half hour or or more, depending on how your day's going. (laughs) Then... When we're ready, we're going to make the filling um, for the quiche. I love to put onions in my quiche. So I'll, um, I'll chop the onion and then my daughter will saute the onion until it's sort of translucent, starting to go translucent. It's important to do that early enough in the day that whatever you put in as a filling is cold by the time you're going to assemble your quiche for baking. Because if it's hot, then it's going to melt the butter in the pastry and you're going to end up with a, with a pastry case that's not uh, as crisp as you might like it. So I will typically do onion. If we have leeks, then leeks are the preference. Leeks in a quiche are a gift from mm. the gods. Leeks and cheese together are very good friends. Yes. So onions or leeks, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe an onion or two leeks or a blend of the two, um, cook that up in a, in a skillet with enough time to let it cool down ahead of your assembly of the quiche. And then to make the filling, really easy, four eggs and about a third of a cup of milk. And then you just whisk those together. You can do it with a fork. It doesn't have to be done with a machine until they're combined. And then two good child fistfuls of shredded cheese in there. <laughs> um, that could be cheese that the child has grazed themselves or maybe from a bag of shredded cheese. I'm not going to be um, too dictatorial about that. And those measurements are loosey-goosey. They're child fistfuls of cheese because cheese is good in a quiche. And you know, it's difficult to put too much cheese mm-hmm. in a quiche. And when it comes to assembly time, Take your pie crust out of the refrigerator, carefully trim with a sharp knife all the way around the edge so you have a nice edge to the quiche crust. Then the onions or leeks or onions and leeks go into the crust along uh, in the bottom in a pile. You pour the, the eggs, milk, cheese mixture on top, gently sort of mix it all around carefully with a fork so everything's e- relatively evenly distributed and then pop that into an oven at about 375 degrees 
for about 30 to 40 minutes until the top has um, gone a, a nice brown color. You'll see the quiche is probably lifted up. It's probably risen because of all the steam inside it will collapse back down as it cools, but you're looking for the top to be that nice brown color. Take it out of the oven, put it on the table, congratulate your child, and then eat. <laughs> that is perfect. And I'll add one thing. Just um, it's the the jiggle test, right on the on the quiche because it's really like a custard. So if you give it a little tap and it the, the jiggle wiggle, it can't be too loosey goosey that it's not that it's undercooked. Can't but be too loose, a, no. Yeah, yeah, the jiggle wiggle like a jello. <laughs> so that's always yeah. Kind of a I, think, I think if the if the top has if the top has risen and is a nice brown color, then that's a good sign. But yeah, the jiggle mm -hmm. test is is always fun to do and and instructive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that recipe. I think it's definitely one that's um, doable. And I hadn't thought of making quiche with Daniel, but I think that might be the next step. He's um, been rolling. Well, you can do it in uh, pieces rolls. as well. So, yeah. so there's multiple steps, right? There's yeah, making yeah. the crust, there's making the filling, there's sautéing the onions and leeks, there's cracking mm -hmm. the eggs. There's all sorts of pieces of that that can be done separately as learning. Yes. And then once all those skills have been mastered, they all come together and ta-da, you have this beautiful homemade quiche that you can present to your family. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I love how you talked about the ratios because ratios are sort of like, I don't know, like the Fibonacci sequence in life, right? <laughs> like where you see it everywhere. Um, but the ratios of cooking really open up a world of cooking to anybody. And, and it's a good way to, to start people learning because I feel like I went through culinary school and it was only after I finished that I began to think about ratios. <laughs> so it would have been nice to have that early on in life because it just makes cooking a lot easier and baking especially. So they're lucky to be taught by you. So make a quiche, make a quiche with Danielle and let me know how it goes. I will. We're going to take your recipe and we'll make it. We have a leak in the refrigerator and we've got eggs and um, we've got cheese. So <laughs> we're ready to go. Rock and roll. We have dinner this week. Thank you. Yeah. Well, your kids are really lucky uh, to be so well looked after in terms of their understanding of what it means to be a citizen of this world and in this time. I want to thank you for everything that you've shared today. Um, it really represents to me your deep love of food and drink and environment and people and it really is kind of the essence of food love, the space between terroir and the Tao of food. Thanks, Adrian. Well, thank you, Rufina.